0: Welcome back to the Whatever It Means To You podcast. We're back at it at the Boat Studios. My guest today is a very well-known artist, Justin Gaffrey. Uh, Does a lot of other things, too. Super talented guy. Really enjoyed having him in the studio. This was a cold one. I've never met Mr. Gaffrey before. So we never know how that's going to go. But hell of a story. Really enjoyed talking to him. And I hope you all listening enjoy it as well. (laughs) From Boat Studios in Destin, Florida, it's the Whatever
1: It Means To You podcast.
0: It's something that most people don't like at first.
1: With Jared Gramblin. I love my job, but I hate talking to people like you. And Shane Denton. White people, yay! We got a good one for
0: you today! Alright, it's the Whatever It Means To You podcast live from Boat Studios. My guest today is Justin Geoffrey. What's up, Justin? What's happening? How you doing, man? I'm good. Good, good. Uh, thanks for coming in, first of all, man. This is definitely a, a new experience. Most of the time when I have people in here, I have maybe some sort of past history with, man, but I don't know you from anything, man, really. Uh, so I appreciate you volunteering to come in here, and uh, and share a little bit, man. So.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like I used to know everybody in this town, and anymore, I don't know anybody. Yeah, well, that's
0: like, how it goes when you kind of quit you know, yeah. one thing and take on a new venture, yeah?
1: Yeah, but that was in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> 80s and 90s in the restaurant, but many of those are not still around, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah.
0: Are you originally from this area?
1: I'm from New Jersey, actually.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, like I was explaining kind of before you got on here, we, we kind of just give a platform for people to kind of tell their stories. So let's get into that a little bit, man. How do you end up from New Jersey to uh, to our area?
1: <clears throat> My father worked for the railroad out of New Orleans and uh, moved here when I was 10 years old. He used to like uh, commute to work a week on, week off on the railroad out of New Orleans. So Fort Walton Beach was four hours away. You know, we're four hours away from New Orleans. So yeah, moved here in 1980.
0: So he just he just picked like that's the place I want to live. And well, it's like as
1: a kid, we always lived like when I lived in California, we lived. In like Tahoe, and he worked out of Oakland, you know, because he worked a week on, week off, and didn't like to live in the cities, usually where he worked. Mm-hmm. Though,
0: so yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So you, uh, what? How old were you when
1: you got to our area? Ten years old. Okay. Yeah. Fort Walton Beach, on the island, Okaloosa Island. Yeah. Did you go to Fort Walton High? No, didn't make it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got um, I got expelled from Okaloosa County Schools while I was still in Bruner. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you do? Um, I didn't like people telling me what to do, mm-hmm. honestly. I did not like... Like, my dad was just kind of... He's really loose and uh, drank a lot, and so, like, I got to do whatever I wanted as a kid. And um, when I went to that school, you know, they just had a structure that didn't fit me, so I just rebelled against everything. And I think my last year I got suspended seven times and the seventh time was the last, or the eighth time was the last straw, mm-hmm. and, you know, they kicked me out. Most of my stuff was just a few fights, smoking smoking weed, and, and just disagreeing with teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, what happens to, to kids when they get expelled at such a young age? What are, what are the
1: options? At 16, and my option was actually go to Freeport High School, okay. so uh, to go to school in Fre- Freeport Middle School, and I lived... On the island in Fort Walton. <laughs> so that was just not going to work because they, mm-hmm. they, they expelled me from the entire Okaloosa County school system. So I um, I didn't go back to school. My dad was fishing on the pier, on the Okaloosa Island pier, and I had to go tell him. You know, I got kicked out of school. And he's like, well, you better get a job. Mm-hmm. And I went out and bought a pair of shorts, and <laughs> and I think I went swimming. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Okay. <laughs> If you don't mind, I'd like to dive a little more into this. Is that okay? Sure, go ahead. Okay, yeah. So, so how do we get from from there to you know what? What are you what are you doing from that time frame? Because I'm assuming if seventh eighth grade your your education's pretty much pretty much done. You're what thirteen years old?
1: No, because I, I had I had failed the ninth grade, and so I was still in ninth grade. Okay, you know, so I never made it past the ninth grade. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, yeah.
0: So what happens then?
1: Well, the best thing that ever happened actually was I moved away. I moved from from the Okaloosa Island to Gulf Pine Subdivision, where by Sandestin, and I got away from all my friends. And I moved. And I was still living with my dad at that time, and I was sixteen. And uh, it was the best thing that ever happened because I got away from all of my hoodlum friends that I got in trouble with. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I just, I think I just grew up really fast.
0: Started making better decisions. Yeah, that kind of. Well, stuff. Well, my
1: da- my dad booked. He left town. Like, probably six months later, he left, and then I was on my own. So then I really had to get my shit together.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. So at 16, you're flying solo in,
1: like, the Sandestin area. Yeah. So what do you do? Well, um, we we had this nice house over by the beach, and um, um, my stepmom was there, but she kind of left, too. And so it it was my sister and I. And then she got a boyfriend and then moved in with him. She's, like, a year and a half older than me. And I couldn't afford to pay the rent, so I moved to, I had a roommate, got a roommate, moved to Fort Walton for 300 bucks a month, a four-bedroom house, and um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so what's, uh, this story actually gets funny now when I think about it. So I, um, so I moved to Fort Walton, and I have a job um, at this restaurant where uh, Ocean Club is mm-hmm. as a busboy. And then it's like a commute to work. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to get back and forth to work. But so um, let's see. How's this story go? <laughs> this story actually gets hilarious. So I, I, I've, I've got to get to work out to, out here. And so I needed a car. And this guy I knew who had a friend who wanted to he, – he, tra- tra- <laughs> he was willing to trade his car for a pound of weed. So – I traded the car for a pound of really bad weed. <laughs> and um,
0: what, what what time frame is this? Like the early '90s, it's late like
1: '90s, '87. Okay. Yeah, maybe '87 by now.
0: So you traded a pound of weed for a vehicle.
1: Yeah, and so the vehicle is hilarious because this guy had a um, Gremlin. And it's yeah. <laughs> worth a pound of weed, <laughs> yeah. But wait a minute, this guy had a gremlin that had a, a new paint job, tin windows, and mag wheels on it, and good air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it was a pretty souped up gremlin, It only, only souped up like somebody gremlin that I've ever known that anybody's fixed up, yeah. And that was my car, so yeah. wow.
0: Okay, how much did a pound of weed go for? In- the late 80s. It's like 700 bucks or
1: something. Yeah. seven 800 bucks. Yeah. For a good weed, I think it was like 12. It still seems expensive, but yeah.
0: Well, yeah. Well, there wasn't... Uh, there wasn't what people considered like kind bud back then. Or no, right? Like, it was or like nuggets or... It was
1: brick weed. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah.
0: So how... do Okay. How do you just have access to... If you just... I'm assuming that wasn't the only pound you had. I mean, um, we're past Statue of Limitations, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. Well... As I said, this this, this conversation is going to go far south. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just started selling pot at a young age in school, you know. So you just, once you do that, you just know how to find everything. You know the hookup, mm-hmm. you know. And so I used to sell weed at uh, Wayside Park when I first moved here, when I was like 14. And that's where, like, it was like a major drug park. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So you just had access to whatever you need. Yeah. So if someone's like, hey, I got a car, you're like, I got a pound of weed.
1: Yeah. Well, a friend of mine knew the manager at, the, at this place that worked at the Santa Rosa Mall. And so he didn't have, I mean, yeah. So he had the car and he wanted weed. And so, yeah. And I had yeah. a car.
0: Okay. So now you're back and forth to work.
1: So this is the store. Okay. So I'm living in Fort Walton Beach, right over the Brooks Bridge on Okaloosa Road. The most roaches ever seen in a house in my life. We literally used to shoot BB guns in the living room to shoot the walls off the roaches off the wall because there were so many roaches. (laughs) Like you could pound the wall and you hear them like scattering all behind the. Oh jeez, it was disgusting. But you know, it's all I had. So, um, so I have a gremlin and I'm working out at it was think it was called Bobby's, which was where the Ocean Club is was the name of the restaurant. And this by this time is when this road right out front just opened highway 98 because before it used to be just only old 98 two-lane road um, to get to Sandestin and in the summertime traffic was horrendous Mm -hmm. like the just it would be bumper to bumper from Destin to Sandestin on old 98 and I was really excited because I had this gremlin with mag wheels on it and I'm hauling ass on the new 98 like doing like 80 what do you mean by mag wheels like, I don't. I don't know what that means. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm a not, car. I'm not a car guy. Okay, I'm not into cars at uh-huh. all. But like, uh, you know, like people. I'm. I'm totally not into cars. I just coincidentally got this car. Any cool car I got was just by coincidence because I don't give really give a shit about mm. cars. Um, you know, like you have your stock rims, and then someone gets like these special rims. I guess they call them mags. Mag, okay. Ma, I don't know. Yeah, that's just in my head. It's like some vernacular from the 80s. I don't know. So it just
0: means, basically, it means non-stock. Yeah. Like fancy, nicer, nicer setup. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like to put on a Gremlin, nice wide tires are wide, Mm -hmm. like racing like, you know, sports car tires. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I'm, I am, uh, I still don't know a whole lot about cars and I didn't know a lot of cars back then. I did eventually have to learn how to fix them because I had no money, but I'm excited because I'm on this new road on this new uh, four lane road that goes from Destin to Destin, and I'm going like 80 miles an hour and my gremlin starts to overheat and then i fry, i fry the engine <laughs> totally fried it on the way to work like and then i got no car again mm-hmm. so that's that was the end of my gremlin yeah
0: <laughs> so, did you, okay so you sell for parts or <laughs> did you trade up
1: <laughs> okay so okay so now this helps with the chronology you know i'm 49 years old now so the chrono- chronological order of things get mixed up after a while but now i do know the date because that was 1987 so that's when harry t's opened in destin the original harry t's Mm -hmm. in the yacht club and um i had a job there and they hadn't opened yet they were about to open and i got in on the opening crew and so i had like a couple months before my job was going to start because i had to find a closer job to for walton than than um uh sandestin Mm -hmm. so i get the job there and i got this car and the mechanic shop and so the guy's like you need a new engine. Well, I'm not going to, I have no money, plus I'm not going to put a new engine into a Gremlin. <laughs> and so so I'm like, can you give me anything for it? Anything. And um, <laughs> this this is kind of funny. So he's like, I don't know, man, it's really not worth anything. We can junk it and you can get something for it. I was like, well, I can't even get it to the junkyard to get anything for it, so will you give me $35 for it? And I got thirty-five bucks for it, and then the reason I needed thirty-five dollars was the uniform at Harry T's. And I had no money; I was eating like popcorn for dinner. I had nothing. So the uniform at Harry T's was these brand called Duckhead khaki pants. I yeah. remember Duckhead. Duckhead khakis yeah. and Reebok white tennis shoes, and then they give you a T-shirt. So I think so they
0: made you go buy the Duckhead khakis, and they made you
1: buy the the, the, re, the white Reeboks. Okay. And so Reeboks back then were thirty-five bucks, and so I think I had was able to scrounge enough money for a pair of Duckheads, and I needed thirty-five dollars to get the uh, Reeboks. So I basically traded the Gremlin for a pair of Reeboks. <laughs> well, uh, uh,
0: was it always the same owner at Harry T's for, for since the beginning? Has it been Emson? He
1: was the manager then. He was the opening manager. No, it was Peter Boss had owned it from Sand Okay. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So then he, I think he bought it from Peter Boss at Sandustin. Okay. Yeah.
0: Wow. I can't. Im- I can't imagine like starting a job having an overhead already for people who normally people who are just getting jobs, especially in the service industry, they don't they don't have that, especially in the late '80s. I'm assuming. Don't have what? Like the the cash. Oh if right. If you're starting a new job at a new place. You uh, you know most people didn't you know they are probably aren't just transferring. Well, you know?
1: especially back in the '80s, man, jobs like the want ads. Like I'm a, I you know moved out when I was 16, so jobs were important. And the want ads, especially in the winter time, would be like one column, and those were mostly the worst jobs you can get. Mm-hmm. Like because you know you had to literally go to the newspaper to find a job, but jobs were scarce. And then to get a job was one thing, but then to keep a job because the winners were, you know, from October till March. Absolutely nothing. Many people got laid off, so you had to like, you had to bust your ass to keep your job, so you have a job all year round.
0: Yeah, you know, or or so or just save real hard during the season. Yeah, you
1: know, and Yeah, which eventually I was able to do, but you know, um, yeah. Yeah.
0: So you got your rebox
1: You got my rebox and I got a job at Harry T's.
0: Yeah, and then eventually, because uh, you became—I mean, you had some success in the service
1: industry, correct? Well, so leading from Harry T's, so I started as a food runner. Or an expediter and then a food runner and then then so i started when i was 17. it's easy to do with my age because i was born in 1970 so everything so yeah so when i was 17 i started so they said when i turned 18 i could become a waiter so i became a waiter uh when i was 18 and i had to start working the day shift which is the worst shift you know you don't make any money so i'm working at the yacht club and i'm seeing all these because before i worked nights and i'm seeing all these people on their boats and you know, in their summer clothes, having fun. I'm like, I don't want to work days, I want to work nights. But I wasn't patient enough to um, wait till I get moved to the night shift because I'm only 17, I had no patience. And um, so I left and went and got a job at uh, Prescott's. Um, do, you know, do you know about Prescott's? Um, no, I'm not no. familiar. So yeah, you guys are so young. What's Prescott's? <laughs>
0: What's Prescott's?
1: (laughs) So Prescott's was, there was this guy, Prescott Stewart was a chef around here. He's just this crazy guy, you know, but he was like one of the hot chefs in the area back then. And he worked for this place called Beachside Cafe, I think. But they were opening a place over there and and these people invested money to name the restaurant out of him because he had such a good reputation. And so I started as a busboy there with the intention, because this was like fine dining. So like they said, if I start as a busboy and I work a season, they'll move me up to a waiter. And I'm like, cool, because you know, fine dining, these guys were making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so I went into work one day and um, as a busser and I was like, I'm hungry. I went in the kitchen, you guys got anything I can eat? You know, they don't feed people in the restaurant back then, you know? So uh, the chefs, Prescott's like, sure, you can have and they were cleaning like a tenderloin, a filet tenderloin. They call it the chain meat. He's like, you can have that. So I just went in there and started. And I never worked with that kind of, I never had that kind of stuff before. So I just, this is kind of like the scrap meat. So I went over there and started hacking it up and seasoning it up and threw it on the grill. And he's like, man, it looks like you're not know a cook. You want to have a job cooking. And, and I was supposed to be a waiter. And I was like, I kind of like being in the kitchen. Sure. So I started cooking then. And he had a sous chef who was professionally trained and very professional and sincere about his work. And Prescott was just, you know, crazy. And, um, he kind of took me under his wing and just started to show me everything. And I was like, okay, I want to be a chef. And so I spent the next, you know, 10 years, you know, um, trying to be, well, I became a chef at, I think 21, an executive chef in um, California at that time. Yeah. I, I I know I just jumped, but, um, I'll, I'll actually go back. So I worked there for a little while, and uh, Creoles was opening in Greaton Beach. Have you heard of that place? I don't. I don't know mm. Creoles. Yeah. yeah. So Creoles was like, um, like big time, like one of the hottest fine dining restaurants. Like they were, they were in the Florida trend, always like the top restaurant. And so I went. I was landing on the opening team with that, and um, it was exciting because it was. They were They were really serious about food, and I was serious about learning and serious about food. And so I kind of just cut my teeth through that and just like, it just kind of boosted me more to re- make me realize I want to be a chef. Mm-hmm. And at that time, like I said, we used to close in the winters here, especially out in and Beach It was like super dead. And, uh, on the off season from October till, you know, we'd open up like in mid February, I would go out to California and work the ski resorts, which was a lot of fun. And, uh, after my second year back at the ski resort, they asked me if I want to be the sous chef there. So I said, sure. Actually, I think they made me the sous chef before I left. And when I came back as sous chef, they uh, fired their executive chef and hired me. And I was 20 and I had the executive chef job at Kirkwood Ski Resort.
0: Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> so you obviously had some talent then. It just kind of
1: fit, right? Yeah, I think I was just like, it was funny because I think it's because I moved moved out at such a young age and had been in so much trouble when I was young. I kind of grew up really fast and I wanted to get my shit together. You mm-hmm. know? So I'm twenty years old as an executive chef and everybody is just like, you know, all the guys that work the ski resorts, man, they're just it's all about a party, you mm-hmm. know. And um and I did that too, but I was more sincere about making my career as a chef. So
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well you you were there was a balance there. It wasn't let's work tonight, go spend all the money we made, right? Get fucked up and come back in the morning all hungover and do our job half assed and do it do it again the same night.
1: No, no, you I wouldn't no, I didn't do that. I mean I would I'm not saying I didn't have a hangover every now and then mm-hmm. but you know I was I really wanted to be a chef. So yeah. I was you know and you I was and I felt lucky that they hired me as their executive chef and they knew that obviously I work really hard, you know. So that's that's why they did it and so I was willing to keep going with that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, do you feel like that like made a huge impact on you as far as like changing your life for the better? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like it was something like you found it when you needed to kind of thing. Yeah.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you spent some time in California doing that, and then you found your way back here. I'm assuming.
1: Yeah. um, You know, I wanted to be in fine dining, and Kirkwood was, um, you know, it's just mass production food. You know, it's it's ski lodge food, and I had a job offer. So this guy, Bradley Ogden, who was a chef out in California, owned some of the top restaurants in San Francisco at the time. And So being in Tahoe, you know, you just you get to know everybody that's down on the shore. You know, I'm not the shore is like I'm in Jersey. But, you know, from Santa Cruz all the way up to the northern Bay area to the north side of the Marin County. So you get to know all those people. So I had a, a job offer to be a sous chef um, at Bradley Ogden was opening a uh, restaurant in I think it was the IBM building in San Francisco. And he was like one of the hottest chefs in San Francisco at the time. Meanwhile, at the same time, Criollas was needed a new sous chef. And so it was like, well, do I, and I was like, do I go back here? Or do I go to San Francisco? And I started looking for an apartment in San Francisco. And i was yeah. like, Oh shit. <laughs> I'm going to have to like live, like I'm going to have to like commute to work. Cause I couldn't, you know, and so the, the money was almost the same offered what I could have got here, Versus there, and I and back then, it cost nothing to live out here, you know? So I could live like a king and live out here, you know? So I came back here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And then, uh, what, did that for a while until you just said, what, enough's
1: enough? Or I think I was 20... I was either 26 or 27. And I think I was getting burned out on the restaurant business by then. And I... I just didn't, I don't think I like working 70 hours a week, mm-hmm. you know, anymore. So I think that's, I think it was in, in 96 or 97 that I said, screw it. Because luckily before that I started buying, I started, I bought a piece of property as like a owner finance, I bought two lots and then I built a house on a lot and flipped that house, had another lot, saved that. So I had, and then built another house and I was like, oh, I got enough money to like kind of try and do something different. And I started, I used to build furniture on the side as a hobby. And um, um, so I I did that for a few years. And then I was starting to run out of money. And by then I was married and had another kid on the way. And I was like, oh, I better get serious. Instead of just, you know, just hanging out, smoking dope and building furniture that I kind of liked it. But I wasn't like really excited about it. And so then I decided to open a restaurant and go back in the restaurant business. Okay. Yeah.
0: So you opened your own restaurant.
1: Yeah. It's called uh, Cafe Sublime. Okay, it right when they built uh, Golf Place in, in San Rosa Beach. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, cool. yeah.
0: And uh, did you did, were you the chef there? Yeah. Okay.
1: So basically what happened there was um, G- Golf Place was just being built, and they just finished their first building. And the, the restaurant that I was going to open was going to be like a 3,500-square-feet restaurant And I kind of, um, I put together a business plan and I started to get investors and and like selling shares of 10,000 bucks a piece. And I had some money, a little bit of money. And I was going to borrow a little bit of money and like mortgage one of my house my house and get another hundred grand there. So I put together this whole plan and I was going to do this 3,500 square foot kind of mid price fun restaurant, you know, big bar and everything in it. But the construction wasn't going to be complete for like a year and a half. And so Ricky, who coincidentally, I guess, is my uh, brother-in-law now, um, was a developer there. And he's like, well, we got this little restaurant, this little spot if you want, if you want to do something in there until that, until then and do that. So I, I did this little restaurant, like 50 seats, including the outdoor seats, like super fine dining. And um, I did that for like a year and a half or a year, and I realized I don't like this. I don't know why I got back into this, and I <laughs> yeah. sold it. I think within a year and a half, I was out again. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, the, man, the restaurant business is it's it's unlike anything else. Um, I remember when I used to when I when I was in some management roles in the business, like a 60 hour week was considered chill. Like you get a 60 hour week in December, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? And then, uh, you know, during the summer, you're, you're minimum minimum 65, 70 hours a week just because uh, just the job and, the, and also the job's never done. If, if that made sense, it is for the night. But there's never like a, you know, that's it. No, I, know, I don't think I remember did it.
1: having so many things to do all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I, you just wake up with 10 things to do first thing in the morning, and then you're doing things all the day, and you're thinking about all the things you got to do, and you wake up in the morning. It's just insane. Yeah, and then you
0: can't sleep yeah. because you have a list of 20 things that you know need to happen like now.
1: And of those 20, yeah. usually five of them get screwed up somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Whether, you know, the fish isn't right, the produce order's wrong, the linen didn't show up, or the employee did, it's just. It's, because Always, it just makes me sick thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's bizarre. I think Shane's got it figured out though. He's got his own little like bar program to wear. And I mean, I know you still deal with your stresses. Oh, it's still of a it. fucking nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> every, every day's a nightmare. Um, but uh but still, if you can minimize the like owning or, or managing is definitely probably wouldn't be for me either. If I had, I've told people this many times. If I had the money to open up a restaurant there's a hundred other things I would do before I'd open up a restaurant. Like that's the last thing I would do is open a restaurant. Because also if you're running it perfect, a lot of people don't think like when I was little and if as a child, if one of my friends' families like owned a restaurant, I thought they were rich. Like in my head, I was (laughs) like, Oh, oh, they're rich. They have a bunch of money. And, but then like when I actually got into the business and started, and especially from the management side, started looking at the the total cost of everything. And if we're, you know, if we're running our labor at, fifteen percent and and if everything works out perfectly i might be able to clear like 10 percent profit yeah maybe
1: that's insanity uh, yeah.
0: that and because it's just such a fi- the margins are so fine man yeah. i there's no way i could do it like stress nightmares and you know whatever else so um but anyway you so you sold you decided no nah, that was a bad move don't want to do the restaurant
1: thing again yeah um Luckily, uh, a friend of mine bought it that had the lake place, you know, where, where uh, Jim eventually put Stinkies and bought it from him. But yeah, he bought it from me and it was an easy sale. I walked away. I didn't I made a little money on the sale, but, you know, I was just glad I didn't lose money. Mm-hmm. And I was really happy that and I just walked away and I I was probably going to get into like real estate like development, like not like a, sale, a real a realtor, but uh, I like building things. Mm-hmm. So I was just going to go back into flipping houses and stuff. Yeah. So. But I didn't. Okay. So what happened? Um, I had uh, run the art gallery with my... I was married at the time, and my ex-wife was an artist. So, you know, I was working in there with her building furniture and stuff. And then so one day I just decided to paint a painting. And I was like, wow, I really like painting. And I just I have not stopped since. Zero
0: history. Yeah. You had never painted anything. You
1: just said... Yeah. And then you just... That was it. So back then like the whole uh in the 90s um late at the end of the 90s and early 2000s southern folk art was really popular and there was like this guy Woody Long that lived on 30A and he was a really well-known and respected uh, southern folk artist he's a white one there's no, you know mostly of our, our black folks in the in the south but um the folk art movement was really big with like uh Mose Tolliver and uh T. went by and I forget some of the names so which is basically a very primitive style of artwork you know you don't it's not based on skill it's just based on you know just portraying your message you know in a very some of the stuff looks like a kid can do it so Mm -hmm. it's like well if I could start that way because I mean I had no it wasn't like I was painting like you know Monet impressionistic paintings or Mm -hmm. Da Vinci looking things like that you know so um, so I started off in a very simple way so I you know it was it was harder to fail like that you know so it all worked out.
0: Yeah. Okay. So uh, you seem like you you seem like you have a really like you've made some like radical changes and decisions, but you seem so just even keeled about it. Oh, it's
1: turmoil inside. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like you just seem so. So I just. Yeah, so I just no, sold a restaurant. Like, no, it's, it's and I,
1: that's it's funny. Well, because yeah, it's all in the past. Do now, you consider you know? yourself?
0: Or do you you are a risk taker, but do you see yourself that way?
1: I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, but it's it's a constrained risk, you know, because raising a family and stuff. I I, I had thought about, you know, there's a, there's de- there was definitely a point in my life where where especially after my divorce that raising my kids was super important to me. Mm-hmm. Like it just like it hit me like that's you know it could be really self-absorbing for a period of time, but then I saw my kids when they got to a certain age that their lives were more important than mine because I saw the. I saw them turning into me as a kid, which is not the worst thing, but there's a lot of trouble that goes along with that and mm-hmm. risk, you know, so. Um,
0: well, and just by you were probably able to share some. I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your kids, but I, you probably had some good information to share with them um, from the way the, the way your story was coming up.
1: Yeah, I think they're, I think so. Yeah, I, I do have a good relationship. How old with my kids. are your kids? My son, oh shit! Um, I, <laughs> Ballpark. He's either twenty-four or twenty-five, and my daughter is twenty. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so grown. Yeah. Oh yeah, grown. Yeah. yeah. So, but we, relative to that, I know we're just chronolo- chronologically jumping all over the place. But, but right now, so my daughter had went away to Colorado to go to school uh, last year, or a little less than two years ago, and so um, you know, the sh- and then this is kind of a bittersweet thing but then um when I went to visit her this fall she had quit school she didn't want to go to school anymore and school was really expensive you know nice apartment in downtown Denver and you know go into art school there and when she decided not to go to school I was like well you have to I can't just pay your life while you're not going to school so then basically by now I'm done with I love my kids and I'm there for them, but I'm done with all that kind of responsibility part. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm just there for them as a a father, but it's not like I'm raising kids. I'm just I'm just with my family now. And so I'm at a point now in my life where I think I could step out and do more courageous things because, you know, I don't have that big financial obligation to make sure my kids are OK. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a cliche, but there's there's less mouths to feed. Right. Yeah. Like, the necessities that need to be there. It's insane. Like, I, I don't have any children, but just looking at it, you just for your basic necessities, like, that's several, several thousands of dollars a month. There's you the know?
1: basics, and then there's, how do you call it, the guilt money? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of, of all the thing, extra things I I would do for my Sarah kids. Sarah has an iPad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, because I, I think was, there was a point in my life where I was a little uh, self-absorbed and and maybe didn't pay attention to my kids. And then when I saw things failing, I, I think I I wanted to them to have more, so I probably gave them more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
0: yeah. How, so how did you, after you paid your first thing, you said this is it. This is what I'm doing now. Is that how it happened? Yeah. And you're just like that's it. And it just start Your your shit just started to sell. Like,
1: well, okay, so it's 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 it, it, it was that easy. So, but it's it it's having everything in place to make it that easy. You know, so for me to start as an artist, and I had already built an art gallery for my ex wife, and so I was already in. It's like I already had a gallery. You had, and it. you had knowledge of the for business. my very first painting that I showed. I already had my own art gallery to show it in. So mm-hmm. it's, so then. I think there's a psychology to this, you know, where this perception is like, oh, he, I don't know, this is in my head, I don't know if this is real, but, um, you know, if somebody assumes that you have your own arcality, it might be, might be good, you know? So maybe, you know, they just assumed that I was, and plus I was painting really primitive, where it didn't have to be, you know, I was, I was mimicking something that was primitive, so I don't think I had to set a high bar and so I just kept painting. I was really excited because I did paint it and I liked it. Like the furniture sometimes when I'd finished them, I was like, ah, I went through all that work and I don't know if I really like that. But the paintings I did and every one and this is the good part about being in the restaurant business, it teaches you how to work really hard. So even though I don't have a, like a real job per se and I'm kinda just, just kinda just screwing off and trying to figure things out, I had a serious, serious work ethic. Where you go from working 16 hours a day, and so if i I, st- I used to apply that kind of stuff into my work ethics as a painter, so my first year of painting, I obsessed over it, and I work you know sometimes 12, 14 hours uh painting and um, so I evolved really fast yeah yeah
0: what you, what'd your first painting uh, sell
1: for? That's a good question. Maybe eight hundred bucks. Wow! Jesus, <laughs> that I
0: had I had this conversation with a with an artist the other day about pricing, about pricing art and how crazy of a thing it is, and it, it's really bizarre because you're you're just you're you're just placing it. Yeah, you're just saying. I mean, I think that's how much you should pay for this. Do you think that's how much you should pay for this? It is true. Oh well, yeah, I'll pay that much for it. Shit, okay. Well, then that's what, that's what I get paid from now on to do this kind of thing. And it's such, and especially, I'm glad that you brought up the thing with the wood. Um, and I'm surprised that you didn't kind of deal with that, with the art thing. But I'm assuming that maybe that's because you you didn't really know what you were getting into. You just did it, you know? Like, I'm not explaining this the right way, Um whether it's writing writing songs writing scripts for a commercial anything creative you I, anything that i've done creative i've always gone back and forth in hating it and loving it the same project 20 times before it's delivered like so, like you did with your with your furniture right. i'm sure right. sometimes you're like this this is shit and then sometimes you're like this is really great like i need to keep doing this but it, it doesn't seem like
1: you dealt with that From your art side, you just—it was a love from the get go. I think that's an advantage of of um, when you when you teach yourself how to do something and you're not comparing it to something. So say you go to school as an artist and you have all this 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 stuff to compare what you're supposed to be. You have students to compare. You might have the better student that 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 excels naturally. Mm -hmm. You know, then you have these people in the middle struggling everywhere. And then you have all the, the the things you read and see to compare it to. And if you if you if you have that compare that compare in mind to it, I think that you'll I think that can hinder you in a sense.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite sayings is comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. And so, that's exactly right.
1: So I think that for me, it's just kind of a naivete in it of just like just doing whatever and thinking it's great and just keep moving forward and not having that comparison to, to, uh-huh. to knock you down. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, it seems, so judging by your past and, and your work ethic, I'm assuming you still spend several several hours a week doing this
1: yeah especially right now I, i've gone through phases where i kind of slack a lot mm. but i'm pretty darn i'm pretty obsessed right now and work a lot Yeah. You know?
0: do you do a lot of commission pieces or do you just do whatever and then sell
1: i prefer not to do commissions yeah i hate them anybody listening <laughs> <laughs> yeah there goes that. half my income <laughs> <laughs> no um I have I have this new guy that started my my manager that's been with me for for several years is moving and you know it's it's he's like a security blanket you know he he, he Brian you know he takes care of everything for you and um, he's he was
0: on it by oh, the yeah, way he's right. the one yeah. who set this up yeah, yeah. So, I don't know him at all and he's the one who set this up and ultra responsive yeah very, like very very professional yeah and, and yeah he's a good guy to have things. on your team and I don't even know him
1: however. My new guy that's started is my assistant uh, Jeremiah who's been my assistant in the shop and Jeremiah is a musician and he's he he is he's the quintessential artist that that lives in his own chaotic brain and has his method that works for him you know Brian is very organized and, and, and methodical about the way he does things Jeremiah is more of another version of me and you get to it's kind of chaos in that when you have two artists that that kind of don't it's like, I, I can focus really well and I can be organized, but it's my own organization. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's like, but like Brian could be really organized that works across the board for everybody, you know? And I just have like a, a madcap organization that only works for me. Jeremiah has a madcap organization that works for him. However, so Jeremiah, when Brian went out of town a few weeks ago, started to, that's like, man, you need to be in the gallery selling paintings because I saw him play a, a seaside rep doing a show. And I was like, and that's the first time I ever seen him play. He's been working for me three years. And he's got this, like, stage stage character. He's just really outgoing, and, you know, and I was like, you need to be out there selling paintings. And so Brian went out of town for a week, and he did really well. And, and I realized Jeremiah needs to be out there talking to people instead of in the shop with me, working with me, because as... Um, how do I say this nicely? Jeremiah is better with people than than all the technical things. You know, he did great technical things, but he's going to be better with people. Mm-hmm. So but anyway, Jeremiah said yesterday we're, we got the new guy, Mike. Um, I mean, John, start, sorry, John, I, don't know where I got <laughs> Mike from. John, who is another musician, but he's he seems really organized. But anyway, so we were all having a conversation yesterday and talking about commissions. As you were asking, do you get commissions? And Jeremiah's like, "Not anymore. You're not going to get any commissions anymore, or at least like they were. Because sometimes you get people to give you commissions, and when you need the money, you do them. You say yes, but I, I loathe them and hate them, you know. So Jeremiah's like, he's not. Gonna, he, he's going to protect me. He says from getting those really shitty commissions. Yeah. Where people want you to paint some weird thing for them that that's not in my repertoire anyway. But then when you got to pay bills, I say yes. But Jeremiah is gonna try and convince them to just, you know, get a painting off the wall. If you want something, just let Justin do what he wants, and that's mm-hmm. the way it should be, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you got. I, I, I went all the way around to get there, but. Yeah.
0: I've, no, I feel like that's the same way uh, in a, in a lot of art too. For just like songwriters having to write for other artists, they can they they can come up with good products, but at the same time, they're gonna say we need a song about this. It Needs to be this long. You know, blah, blah. of course, the songwriter's not going to have the same enthusiasm about that project that they would had it be something that they were just creating. Right, right. It's, it's that's just natural. I, I feel I don't I don't think that's a weird thing. But and it's also it's got to be really weird to to take because commission pieces. I mean, realistically, you, you're gonna there, there's a price, there's a
1: premium that you're gonna pay to get your artist to do what you want them to. Right, and so we're, we're, when Jeremiah starts full time in May, we're we're adding fifty percent to all commissions from now on. <laughs> 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 well, there you go. <laughs>
0: um, how so? How many pieces do you think you're creating,
1: like in, in a year now? You know, over the past several years, you know, I, I probably kind of moved between three hundred and fifty to five hundred. You know, Ooh. and um,
0: so you're selling a lot too
1: yeah no, you know it's just the life of an artist you know one year's great, one year's not, you mm-hmm. know whether or not if I do five hundred paintings half of them I go to charity you know so mm-hmm. but um um I'm trying to ultimately paint less, but i and it's funny as I've been saying that for years, and I think this year I'll probably paint more than I ever have because I'm trying to um trying to get somewhere with something, you know, so what do you mean um It's gonna be a whole other opening can of worms. It's okay, man. We're here. That's what we're here to do. (laughs) Okay, so um, last year was a weird year, and like weird year, like business wise, and um, uh, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna have a sip of water.
0: (laughs) You can have a sip of whiskey if you'd like. No.
1: Those days are really over for drinking whiskey in the daytime. <laughs> I can barely drink whiskey once a month, let alone in the daytime now. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I love whiskey, though. Me too. <laughs> I wish I could drink it every day and not, and not destroy my body and my mind.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so anyway, so, um, you know, I think as what's happening now is I'm, now I'm 40. I just turned 49 like a week or so ago. And I'm getting to this point where I know that I'm not going to be able to sustain this work pace anymore, you know? Even though was, I love work, I do I do love what I do, and I love pushing things really hard, but physically it's getting harder to to do that. In my mind, I think probably many people, you know, as they get older, you know, when you get closer to 50, you, I'm sure they're all feeling the same thing, you know? You can't quite do the same things exactly as you used to, you know? I mean, and by no means am I old, but like to paint, to to paint 500 paintings a year I know is not a sustainable thing to do. So, um, I'm pushing really hard this year to get ahead which seems like like uh, what is uh, Chuck Koschman wrote that book uh, killing yourself to live. It's just, you know, we do these stupid things in life. We think, you know, to to get ahead and I'm I'm working harder than ever to get there which is, is I don't know if that really makes sense or not to do that, but that's what I'm doing. Because, one, I've got to get ahead because you're, la, la, last year was an off year, and, two, I'm starting a new company, and I've got to get ahead so I can take some time off from painting to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you hate free time. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, I know. So this is, again, this is, this is exactly what I just said, killing yourself to live. So, like, I obsess over things. I will – I I, will, I will I, especially now that I don't have to, that instant – Raising a family thing, you know, and um, I've got my girl Shelby that I spend most of my time with. But outside of that, you know, I'm just I'm obsessed about my work. And so, shit, was I going with that? Your new company? Oh yeah, I'm new company. So, so last year when I like, okay, I gotta back up. Okay. So. There's this thing, you know, like it, probably a lot of artists feel it is about like chasing something like it's like, you know, you're trying to chase like a place that you're supposed to be with your art, you know, and I kind of just don't want to chase anything. In
0: in, the, in what way? Financially? Um, may, like, a, all, okay. Being featured certain ways. Okay. Having your stuff written about what?
1: All right. How revealing do I want to be <laughs> in this? Um. <laughs> okay ask that question again um i got a lot of information going on swirling in my head right now it's okay and how to calculate how to say it
0: <laughs> yeah what you were saying that did that most artists
1: have a place that they want to be okay so yeah okay so i was having this conversation the other day with somebody i forgot who it was and uh, oh jonah this other guy that's going to start working with me he's just really intuitive and intelligent guy and so he's so he and Jeremiah are going to be working in the gallery, replacing Brian. And um, I was telling the story about you know, of of chasing being in a place and where 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 I think where I think a lot of people think, especially as you get older, where you think you should be in your life. Mm. You know this, which I think is ridiculous. Thing. Isn't it bullshit? But and but we're humans and we do that stupid yeah. stuff. You mm-hmm. know, and we and we put these expectations on ourselves. And so he and he was trying to ask me, Well, what is it that, that you're that you're trying to reach or what is it you're the same thing you asked that you're trying to chase? And and so it's it's there's a thing that when you become super popular and famous about something, and all the money comes with all that. But what comes with all that, and I, I always recognize it in the Beatles, you know, is like as artists that once they got really big, they were able to do whatever they want. Exactly. You get this artistic license to do whatever you want. Yeah. And so I think
0: that was LSD with them too, though.
1: Well, <laughs> well probably both, but a yeah. shit ton of money. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. popularity, you know. So yeah,
0: if you have multi millions, you can go, you know, eat some acid in India and come back with a
1: completely different, change perspective. Right. You and know? and I wouldn't <laughs> mind doing that. (laughs) So, so, um, so, so with that, that you get that freedom, you know, like there's always been like this, this, this internal like push and chasing this place to get somewhere. So maybe I can have that, you know, And, 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 and in a sense, I've been able to do what I want my whole life, but it's been, it's been, it's been hard at times and it's been a little bit of a struggle, but there's been a lot of joy and leisure in it too. And Maybe, you know, we start comparing things again to what other people have, and maybe we want that. So, anyway, whatever that is I'm chasing to try and get there, I'm just kind of over that. I think I would rather, honestly, like, buy a trawler and Shelby and I just, like, take off to South America, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes, and not mm-hmm. chase that and, like, or just go camping, you know, for Simplified. a year. And instead of trying to chase these these um, dreams. And it's not that I'm, I, I still love to make art and I still love to do what I do, but... I think mortality starts to hit you when you get closer to 50. And so it's like, well, do I want to spend all this time chasing that or I would want to just, you know, you know, hang out with Shelby or my family and just, just do what we do, you know, and, mm-hmm. and live life. So meanwhile, I have these ideas that make me work my ass off even harder right now to get there, which is absurd. But so I decided that I was going to go into – Okay, before I say that, so ultimately, what I would love to do with my painting, what I what I said is, I would love to just have to paint one hundred paintings a year max, maybe fifty, and spend a lot of time on them, and go really deep uh, emotionally and psychologically about that work, and not and not just paint um, things that look good in your house, you know. And and I think I think a lot of artists want to do that, you know. I think musicians want to do that, you know. You get tired of the top forty stuff, but that also pays the bills, you know. So, but as a, as a painter, that's what I want to do. I want to paint. I want to, I want to spend a week or two on a, on a painting. But the way my system is set up right now, the economy of my, of my artist business, if I took, if I, if I took two weeks to paint a painting, um, it just wouldn't work in this Mm -hmm. economy of Mm -hmm. the way my business runs, you know, because it's, it's like, it's a machine in a sense, you know, the way I'm putting out that many paintings and, you know, of those five hundred, you know, forty or fifty of them are really passionate, and, and the rest are moving through this this under, this, this kind of um, painting what other people want. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. So, so what's your new business venture then? Oh yeah, Just- that's what we're trying to get to. <laughs> so, um, something I've always wanted to do for years. So, I work in in textured paints. I work in um, you know a. a these heavy strokes of, of palette knife paintings and stuff like that. When I first started doing that, when I first started painting, so you're not going to get a simple answer. <laughs> it's okay. So when, when I first started painting like that, I painted with like in that folk art way that I said, when I first started painting, I painted with house paint and latex caulk. And that's how I made thick paint. You know, mm-hmm. I mix those two together. And at that time, uh, the larger acrylic artists paint companies were coming out with a newer heavy body acrylic that w- that was similar to what I was trying to do, which makes an an impasto effect. And um, they were just coming out, and it wasn't perfect. It was kind of gummy and stuff like that. But in in a few years into when I started painting that way, they started to get it right. And then there was a point when I started to paint a lot. I painted. That's when I started hitting those hundreds of paintings a year numbers. And the, and the texture, when I started painting the texture, that's when my art really took off. And just, like, it was so, so easy to sell it all back then. And then by that, by that time is that, you know, before the bubble busted, people were just spending money like crazy. So it was just, like, everything was flowing out really easily. And um, I was, like, wiping out the artist supply companies with their stock of paint. And at one point, I think it was, like, 2008 or 2009 – I couldn't find any of the paint anymore that I was using because I switched I switched pretty fast after like a year from the latex caulk into uh, the artist paints once they got it down the way I liked it. But they weren't. I don't think they were used to people using as many as mm. I know it. So like I would clear the stocks of the online companies and I hit a point where unless I was going to drive to every art store around just and pick things up, which wouldn't work for me, I get a little quart here, a little pint there, it was, it was gone. Like I couldn't find the paint. And I'm right in the middle of a season where I'm just like painting a lot. And, and so I thought, well, um, well back up before I made decision to make it myself. I called uh, Liquitex was one of the major makers of the paint at that time. And they, they wouldn't talk to me at first and I kept haggling them. And they eventually, I eventually found out that they had switched their, their manufacturing to China. And this stuff was coming over on a boat. And they said it's going to be six to 12 weeks before it actually gets to the, it's going to be six weeks before it gets in, six to eight weeks before it gets in the country. And then it's going to be several weeks before it gets distributed into the hands of, of us. So and I was like, just imagine like in the summertime here and you run out of food. Yeah. You know, with, yeah. like, with, with, with all the restaurants, yeah. you know, that's kind of be like, oh, sorry. Put you out of business. No, no, yeah. no more food, no more alcohol. You can't, you know, so that's what it was like for me. So I started to panic. And then I decided um, I was going to learn how to make paint. So I called this guy down in South Florida, he's an analytical scientist, and he helped uh, reconstruct a recipe for me to make it. And at that same time, and then I flew up to New York and talked to this guy about pigments and stuff. And so I was getting ready to just start making paint, and I was getting samples from uh, chemical companies. And meanwhile, i still need to make paintings and then like i got like i'm losing my economy and the, you know so i found through my research a company out in california that actually makes the paint so i started buying paint from them five gallon buckets and they were able to tweak it and i've been working with this company since and they're a really great company and they've been able to tweak it exactly the way i want it so if it's not the right texture they'll fix it and you mm-hmm. know so and i would buy like you know a ton at a time my my paint orders come in on a semi-truck Oh wow! Like literally, like five gallon buckets, like fifty five gallon buckets at an order on average. So uh, this company was really good to me, and they and they were able to work it for me really well, and and so it just like so I was able to just right jump right back into painting again, and I put away the the going making the paint in the paint company, and that was back in like ten years ago at least, and so I decided last year um, that I was going to go back in and start making paint again, and so right now. That's what, so I'm opening a paint company. I'm going to start manufacturing paint. So last year, there's a story within that story. I thought, well, what makes sense for me is don't actually manufacture the paint. Find a manufacturer, and I'll work with that manufacturer. So I'm not a- actually manufacturing the paint. But I couldn't find anybody at that time in the U.S. to do it. So I went to China, and I had had had, and things are were being are being made better there now. So I was able to find a manufacturer after going through like a dozen different people in China and they got my recipe the way I wanted it and I was going to work with them. And this was like in September. Mm -hmm. And so I, I convinced myself it was the right thing to do, but I never felt good about it. I never like, I've always been a hands-on person. I like making things. I've always made things, you know, whether, you know, whether it's in the food or construction and building things, you know, in the artwork and the furniture, it's just like it's just tactile, and I never felt good. I kept trying to convince myself it was the right thing to go and have somebody else manufacture it, let alone China. But I, I, I kept thinking in my marketing, I'm gonna have to find a way to, to kind of hide that fact mm-hmm. and make it look like mm-hmm. a, you not not lie, but like kind of make it look like that. You know, we're paint makers, but it, you know, but then that's that just still, I just never got around that. So in September last year, I just said, "Screw it, I'm not going to do the Chinese thing. I'm going to make it myself." So, and I still don't. I still at that time didn't know how to make paint. I was working on the recipe back then. We never perfected it. You know, back then, somewhere in the middle of that, I had a guy in Panama City that owns a paint company, uh industrial paint company that was going to try and make it for me. He could never get it right. So, um, so. But meanwhile, in October, I was like, "I'm going to do it." So I just started this intense research, and what's hard about that in the beginning was it's all uh, it's all study. You know, it's not hands-on, tactile research. I'm trying to figure out what the proper things to use and all that. But um, I finally have got in there, and so I ordered all the equipment, having the equipment made. I think it's shipping out this week, mm-hmm. and um, you know these big giant mixers, you know, to mix you know 7,500 gram batches of paint and grind pigments and, and working with the texture is what makes it different than working with regular paint that the makes equipment just uh, more expensive and more difficult to use. So, um, but yeah, I'm going to create a paint company and I'm actually going to manufacture it in my warehouse in Santa Rosa Beach. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. Well, sweet. Yeah. Well, th- and that'll that, do I mean, a couple I, of things. Your paint will be exactly, you'll have access to how much you want, when you when you want it. Right. And you'll be able to sell to other people. Yeah, you know. And, and, but you aren't going away for a year. No, <laughs> I know. See, I told you. I told you it was kind of asinine yeah. to, to do it this way. Okay, but, yeah. but you aren't yeah. going anywhere in a camper.
1: But here's but here's the reality. Is what I know is like I had to figure out a way to do something I was passionate about, and also create a business that I know in 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 the future that I will be able to create a sustainable business out of that where. I don't have to be in there making every batch of paint, you mm-hmm. know. It'd be just like, to me, I relate everything to being in the restaurant business, mm-hmm. you know, because that's what I did in the beginning of my life, and so it's just like, oh, it's just like, you know, the chef doesn't cook every meal, you know, so I'm not going to be in there making every exactly. batch of paint, you exactly. know. Exactly. So, um, so eventually, but, um, you know, I don't know how many years it'll take. It'll take a few years to get there, but you know, I'll be able to create a company that I can have retirement out of. You exactly. Know? So. Yeah.
0: Yeah, residual income that requires minimal, right? Minimal and it's not perishable,
1: like food. Mm-hmm. You know, so he can you could build stock, and you know, yeah, it's not like the only food. Just business.
0: like your art too. If you create five hundred pieces in a year, and you
1: know, two hundred of them sell, you still
0: have a, you have a back stock. Yeah, you know, of yeah. other things. When you're when you're creating at that high of a level, how do you how do you keep like the passion there, and and. <sighs> Put, to make sure that you're putting the same amount of interest and and care into it's, it. How do you make it to where you're not? Here's another fucking job. Boom. So here's another job. Boom.
1: One of the things I've realized about like creativity, you know, is it ebbs and flows regardless whether, whether if you wanted it to or not. It's gonna. It's just it. I would say only three times a year that I feel solidly like in the in three or four times a year, and that in those periods can last anywhere from three to six weeks each where I am 100% in of just, like, you know, when you get in that flow of your creativity and you're just, like, you're, you're just moving through it. It might it might seem effortlessly. It could be cathartic, but it doesn't matter. Cathartic can be the same. But you're just moving right through it, and it just all just seems like it makes sense. That's the th- funny thing about creativity. Even <laughs> I could look back on some of those episodes years later, and they don't make sense, but at least they make sense in that moment. So those kind of just come and go anyway. When you just, you just move through... And I not that I' figured it out because I, I, I put I'm really hard on myself, but I just kind of try and move. so like, if 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 I'm gonna have a creative creative spurt of just of, 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 of a vision of a type of art, I'm gonna stay in it and I'm gonna neglect everything else. And when that falls off, I'm gonna jump into something else. And that's the way it makes sense to do it. And I'm able to achieve that sometimes, but in all honesty, like yesterday, or this morning, I woke up with a lot of anxiety, and nothing to do with coming here. It's like this is the easiest. <laughs> this, is, this is honestly the easiest part of my day, because sometimes I can't control all the information that comes in my head at the same time. So this morning, um, I'm working on these two paintings, and I'm working. Some of them are complex and not not not, and I'm, I'm excited about them. And I started them last week, you know, on Friday. And I'm really excited about them, but they're totally different than anything I've ever done. So there's there's like these huge learning curves in them. But um, I'm also um, working on these paint recipes. And so I just got like my first barrel, 55-gallon, like I've been working on these small samples, you know, like little ounces at a time samples. I've got like all these samples from all over the world. And so like I've been obsessing over trying to get my paint recipe right and I built this I'll show you a picture of it. this machine until my other machine gets here that does four gallon batches and it's this concentric mixer that that I welded a a double paddle that spins around a bucket with another shaft that has a dispersion blade goes through in it so the disperser will break down the particles but the concentric part will fold the mixture. And so you got to have that when you do that. And I made all this stuff, and it's it's hilarious to look at it, but it works. But anyway, so I'm uh, so I wake up in the morning, and I and, and I really want to finish this painting. This one painting is just like it's like a, a like a really ornamental teacup with these uh, um, praying menaces fighting on top of it, and f- and it's just not anything I normally paint, so it's kind of hard. And and there's another one I'm working on, and then but I also want to I also want to um, to work on my paint recipes this morning. And I'm also dealing with like today and this having to come in this podcast. No, (laughs) I'm telling you, this is the easiest part of it, but I'm dealing with the the stuff of, um, with my, with the management changes and that obsessed my mind too, about how we're going to change all of our business. And I'm really excited the way it's going to change because the the new people that are working are, um, you know, they're excited too. And so I have, so like I go to bed thinking about all those three things at one time. You mm-hmm. know, and then there's just life in general that just swirled in that mix, you know, and so when I woke up this morning, all that stuff I'm thinking about, and and I thought I would do some some creative work study last night, but I was too overwhelmed. So then you wake up and it's like, what do I do first? And I and I do get anxiety from that stuff mm-hmm. because I really want to paint, and I give myself guilt for not painting. I'm like I should have finished that painting by now, but I go in and I build this giant contraption, which I was really excited today because I've. Been <laughs> So I go into the wood shop and I build this, this. So I, I'll show you this picture. Can we show it to you now? Yeah,
0: I'll, I'll try to describe it for our listeners.
1: It'll help me. Um, so, so there's that thing right there that that I use to to mix the uh, paint with. Okay. And so, but it's making a mess. And so I build this box this, out of out of Baltic this really good Baltic birch plywood that I'll seal with with uh, sealants in there. So that thing fits inside of it, and I can hose it down. And so, like, I was excited because I, I took a 5x5 five five sheet and built this thing on this stand that was 0 base to the piece of wood. And it's going to fit in there, and I can hose it down, you know. It's crazy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we're
0: looking at, like, a f- I don't want to give it away too much, but it's like a 5-gallon drum with a belt. Um, and and th- what you're describing to me is the widget that you built. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, the, the wood widget.
1: That, so I built this box in which has a, a, a winch, and I put the winch up there, and it's like a like an ATV winch that I had to get it. So yesterday I get the ATV winch, and I have a battery, a 12 volt battery, sitting under the table because it runs on DC, not AC. You know, to pull this whole thing up, but the box is going to drop the whole thing in. But I built that like literally right before I came here, I washed my <laughs> hands, and I, like did that. But I was really excited because, and I didn't. I thought I was playing it that way, but I wasn't sure. I knew there'd be a mistake, but I was able to build it, which was one, two, three, four, five, five cuts on a piece of wood, and I and I didn't have one single bit of waste except for the dust that came off of it. I was like, I I, I get (laughs) excited when that when things like that happen. So,
0: do you uh, you, um is multitasking a chore to you, or or do you think it's a strength of yours?
1: It's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, I obsess over things and I, I like it, but it, it 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 creates a lot of anxiety. But I can't help it, and that's just the way I've always done things. And I don't mm. think I'm ever going to be able to change. Yeah. You do you know? think?
0: Are you a controlling person?
1: Um, I'll let somebody else answer that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I I am in some ways probably. I am in
1: my work environment. Yeah. I don't think in life I am, but I think in my work environment. How do you turn it off? Um.
0: What do you do? You go you go to the beach, fly kites, Um, ride bikes. I think it
1: it changes. I do. I do love riding my bike, and I was like, you know, I ride. I like riding the woods behind my house. You Mm -hmm. know, I had a nice wreck this weekend. I I, I wrecked
0: last week too. I cracked a rib. Yeah, I couldn't breathe for like four days. Nice.
1: That that that's (laughs) that's awesome. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I've got a big bandage and this like big raspberry on my shoulder right now. Fuckers. They put they put the, tra- the, the you know, there's these there's these bike lanes in Destin um, there, especially like in old Destin. Th- there's uh they're, they're really good about having bike lanes along a lot of these roads. So I can go ride for, you know, 15, 20 miles and pretty much stay in a bike lane the whole time. So I don't have to ride, you know, right on the road or try to ride on a sidewalk because that's a nightmare, too. But on trash days, all these people put their trash cans on the bike path. Oh, yeah. So I went to check my heart rate and I looked back up and there was a trash can right on the bike path in front of me hit it flipped over the bars took took the wind out of me you know the sound when you get the air knocked out of you yeah. you're like
1: Eww. Wow. <laughs> it's yeah, a whole different experience that happened <laughs> as you get older what i realized is when you get hurt it, it's just it's in, okay a big hurt like that hurts more cuz like i've been over in the past few years over the handlebars a few times mm-hmm. and it's it's just it's it's a, it's a shocking sensation sometimes but when i fe- this is literally what was going on in my mind when I fell. I came over the little wooden bridge in the woods. Going up it, I was able to get through it fine. I was able to pull the wheel up, but I was going I think I was going too slow and when I came off the bridge, it was it was right after it rained on Sunday mm-hmm. and it just the the tire sunken, and I just went down. You know, yeah. I wasn't moving fast enough. But it was like it, and this is this is weird thing, but it was <laughs> I fell, and I got a nice little bruise on my leg, but it wasn't horrible. And I was like, you know, it's kind of exhilarating to have those small, painful experiences mm-hmm. at times because it wasn't like like, like I didn't get the wind knocked out of me, but I was like, well, I feel alive. This is yeah. okay. You know, nothing's yeah. really bad. I feel a little excited. I'm a little... Do you get that adrenaline rush? You know when that happens, it's like, "Cause I kind of like
0: this." <laughs> Man, I had that conversation with someone the other day. They were like, "It's like you got in a fight, isn't it?" I was like, "Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm a, I'm it. a responsible Well, I'm a responsible <laughs> adult. I don't get into fights anymore. But like when I, I had a big brother, so when I grew up, I mean, we'd throw, we throw mm. all the time. Like I've probably been in a hundred fights in my life, and probably ninety six of them have been with him. Right? You know. Um, but yeah, it, you're exactly right. Every now and then you need to take a little shot to know you're on a fucking pussy. Yeah. <laughs> you <know? laughs> you're like, Oh, okay. That's what that feels like. And I'm still okay. Yeah. You know, you're right,
1: man. So,
0: so what else, man, you ride your bike. What is that? Is that about it, man? Like you, you've mentioned well, Shelby. Is that your lady? Yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: so, um, you know, I spend most of my time with her, but I, I think that I've been like since, um, late last summer like since August I've been so obsessed so freaking obsessed with this paint company there's so much chemistry and I, what I have realized is I love chemistry mm-hmm. I, I realize when it comes to making things I think it's just like as long as I have something I'm intensely passionate about it doesn't matter it's all the same to me yeah. so so it's chemistry is the same as making a painting to me it's all just like a learning curve that I like and so I have been obsessed like working I go home and I might just sit in the bathtub for three hours, like doing research, mm-hmm. you know, like I got, I got my computer in the bathtub, and yeah. like I made a, a shelf, you know, so like, I just sit there for three hours. And so like, I have not been as active as I usually am, it's just because of all the research I've been doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you ever want to go back to like, middle school and tell your principal, like, look at me now? I do have, because I, I, I have, mean, that's crazy I mean to be honest I mean you defied the odds man I
1: do think about I don't think about that but I do think about all the times that I I was so pissed at uh, at him his name was Mr. Klein He's vice principal and then I I remember my last day, I just like, I, you know, when he told me, I like smeared all this shit off his desk mm-hmm. and jumped on the desk and just went crazy. And then, you know, left school. It was, it was a nice exit, you know? <laughs> but I did meet somebody who was like one of his like nieces or relatives, like at an art show years ago and all was good. You know? Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Well, good man. That's a <laughs> uh, congratulations, dude. That's you got a hell of a story. Uh, good luck on, on your paints and, and your painting and your chemistry research and, Everything else, man. It seems like you have a, from, from being a chef to being an artist to building furniture to now creating paint to whatever, it seems like you have a, you've said it a couple times throughout the podcast, you become obsessed with things, but it seems like you also have a system that you just put to everything that works for you. Like, yeah. I'm- like there's a set of rules that I know I need to learn and play by, and you can, you can wiggle within those set of rules a little bit to make it your own. But at the end of the day, if you want to be successful, you still have to play within that that realm if that makes sense. Yeah. And you seem to have figured that out.
1: I think it's on it's a more it's an intuitive thing. I don't I don't like set it, mm-hmm. you know? And that's why I think I go through those weird bouts of of frustration and in self-loathing because I'm not consciously putting them there. I just think I work within those parameters like mm-hmm. naturally pretty well.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, congratulations, man. That's a hell of a story. It was great getting to know you for the, over the past hour, man. Thank you yeah. so much for coming in. People who want to check out your stuff, how can they find, how can they find you? Instagram, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
1: Instagram, Facebook, justingaffrey.com. Yeah. yeah. Is
0: there, what's your Instagram name? Just Justin Gaffrey? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> He's
1: got a guy for What's that? his name? He's got a guy for <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I believe in the social media, but I've never really um, used it myself. Yeah. Um, I'm very little, I, but I do believe in it and I think it's a great platform, but I've just It's I'm not too, God. I'm too, <laughs> <laughs> I'm too obsessed to do things all the time. You know? I believe in it, but I don't really use it.
0: Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah well, congratulations on all the success, man. Uh, best of luck on, on your painting and everything, man. Keep it up, dude. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story, brother. Glad to be here. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Telling me how I felt. I was always telling me to put on my seatbelt Stop sign is always telling me to stop And half a mile later I get the same thing from that cop The world is always telling me what to do Don't hold your breath until your face turns blue Don't drink, don't smoke, don't do crack cocaine Don't jump without a parachute out of a plane Don't drink your craft beers through your plastic straws Don't support gun rights or gun control laws Don't go to a funeral pretending you're dead Don't name your kid Richard if your last name's head Don't go up in the dirigible or down with the ship Don't request wagon wheel if you're not gonna tip There's a whole lot of don'ts, but there's
1: one big do. Listen to this podcast, whatever it means to you